Fifty years ago, people gathered in a small park in Carbondale, Colorado to celebrate art, music, and community. That gathering became the Carbondale Mountain Fair. Hear the voices, stories, and sounds as we take you on a journey of 50 years of the fair. It is a deep privilege that we get to, and I get to, introduce the monks of Gondon Chartse Monastery. This is a monastery of the lineage of the Dalai Lama himself. These monks have come all the way from South India. They'll be with us all week, and they're here to bless the opening of, the, of this incredible fair. So far, you might think that it's all fun and games at the Carbondale Mountain Fair, that the incomparable bubble that's blown up over our paradise here in the Roaring Fork Valley will never burst, and the grass is greener on both sides of the fence. Well, of course, that ain't the way it works, here or anywhere. There doesn't appear to ever have been any existential doubt about Mountain Fair continuing. There was always a dedicated core of believers to keep it going. But there were several challenging episodes in its history, and strangely enough, two of them involved the use or overuse of alcohol at the fair. Here, Tom Folker, Brenda Buchanan, Jeff Dickinson, the Moonlight Cruisers, and Peggy and Jory DeVilbus remember those drunken, carefree days. You know, it always helped to have a keg of beer in the back of the omelet booth to uh, dole out a few glasses of beer to people that we knew, although it was illegal, but we made sure we always had. Of course, Rick and I always had to taste it frequently. But everybody just came back there because we supplied the beer kegs and the fun, and it was the place to be. I guess just part of our... uh, our process of raising hell. <laughs> I do remember a fella hanging out in the trash can <laughs> with the lid over it. And he would, when people would go to throw away their, their drinks and they would drop it through the little, oh, it's like the recycling one. He would drop it through the recycling hole, I think. And he would reach out, <laughs> reach out of there and uh, grab their drink from them. That was that created a few uh, hysterical moments. I'm feeling a little tipsy, tipsy turvy. I don't know how long I'll be able to stand up. The more drunk I get, the funner it gets. We know you love to drink. You guys have been feeding us beer ever since we got here. And so there was a group of young people who got creative and they had their little ice bucket or cooler, cooler and poured alcohol straight into the cooler. We made jungle juice in the cooler and then added ice to it and then added like some cans of Coca-Cola and, and Seven Up and Pepsi and walked into the park. <laughs> the people who did this were my cousins, but they forgot to plug 
the cooler. They forgot to put the plug in the yeah. cooler. <laughs> so it drained all the way out before they even made it in the park. So and at the time I was on the board and I was so glad they didn't tell me about it because I, I would not have known how to handle that. <laughs> that people, young people I knew were sneaking this alcohol. That was the, the same year that we took everything out of my mother's fridge and cabinets and filled every cabinet and every fridge shelf with beer. While the prevailing attitude among fairgoers was somewhat laissez-faire, here's how the two police chiefs saw things, first Gene Schilling and then Fred Williams. Years ago, when we had open containers in the streets and we had people that were very inebriated in the street and we had a lot of fights in town and we responded from party to party to party. The, the early years, my major problem and issue with the mountain fair was, was just drunkenness. I'm pretty sure it was probably 1986. We had, uh, I had, we, we were investigating a sexual assault. We were investigating a knifing. We were investigating another serious assault where a man was airlifted to Grand Junction to St. Mary's Hospital in ICU comatose for three weeks. Uh, 1986 was a, was a year that was the worst mountain fair I ever experienced. And there was a lot of, a lot of discussion about the fair after, after that mountain fair. Yes, the city council was even considering moving the mountain fair to Miners Park. Um, residents of Soper's Park were complaining about drunkenness, urinating in public, uh, the music's too loud. So working with the town council, working with Thomas Lally, we enacted, you know, no, 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 no bicycles, no kegs of beer in the park. Um, music council asked me, directed me to listen to the Saturday night and Sunday night music, so it wouldn't be would not be rock and roll. It'd be more of a mellow music, so people would leave the park, not so hamped up on on rock and roll music. <laughs> there, there was years when Saturday night after the park closed, Saturday nights you couldn't even, you couldn't even drive a vehicle down Main Street. It was just, it was crazy. Um, and I think, I think that was the turning point where Mountain Fair went from a big drunken party to a, a more family-oriented Mountain Fair. And so an era came to an end at the Carbondale Mountain Fair. While some bemoaned the loss of a certain freewheeling fun at the fair, many recognized, some sooner than others, no doubt, that it was a good development for the fair and the town. Both were growing up. Here are John Gorman, Barb Bush, John Colson, Bob Schultz, and Fred Williams. You know, most of the time, everyone is friendly, hospitable, uh, easy to get along with. Um, you know, there's here and there a couple of drunken outbursts, but uh, mainly this is a, a, a suitable for families. It's wonderful. No, you know, I think it made it better, you know, <laughs> I mean, well, I don't know, you know, it, it, I think it made it better. I sort of liked it, um, you know, the people were not just drinking all over the park, and uh, and you're talking to, you know, one of the girls who used to, you know, when we we had all those benches on Main Street, so we each had our own bench to sit, sit there on Friday nights and drink our six-packs, um, but, uh, you know, 
I, you know, like, like anything else, it's usually because of individuals' behavior that change happens. And I think that a few of the years where the crowds got a little unruly and um, were just out of control, knocking over booths, just, you know, tearing things up. Um, like I said, that one year, you know, the couple of years they were throwing beer bottles at the police cars, you know, on Main Street at night. I think it just, you know, I, I think it did sort of bring it, rein it in a little bit. I, I think that people, you know, in the in, in the beer garden have as much fun as anybody else. <laughs> and I think that people, people who can access it. I also think that the, that the teenagers, um, you know, are still coming to the fair with their water bottles with vodka and cranberry, as they have for forty, fifty years. Uh, you know, I don't, but I, I just think it's calmer. I think that not having alcohol all over the park is calmer and cleaner. You know. People aren't walking on beer cans and broken glass. It's less freewheeling than it was. It's it's still a raucous time. There's been a, f- a fairly good job done in trying to control the more outrageous elements of, of fairgoers and uh, keep things a little more under a lid. The change around uh, not being able to bring your own alcohol I personally think that was one of the best things that could have ever happened to the fair uh, because the problems related to alcohol went down dramatically afterwards. By 1992-95, Mountain Fair was just a total family-oriented Mountain Fair. Controlled the drinking a lot better. The park was, um, you know, we put up all the Mountain Fair put up more or place more porta potties. It just took years, but um, you know, I think the Mountain Fair was, was passive by 1994-95. It was just coming a, a great Mountain Fair then. I think that's, I think that's when it grew, grew up. Yeah, it took some years, but um, the Mountain Fair turned out to be better than, better than ever. And so one door shut while another one opened. It was a few years later that KDNK, the local community radio station, began the beer garden, selling beer to fairgoers within the confines of the park. Very quickly, this became a major fundraiser for the station's operations. It became so successful, in fact, that over time, the Carbondale Council on the Arts and Humanities, the Mountain Fair's mother organization, decided that revenues from beer sales rightly belonged to them, the organizers of the fair. This created a painful schism in the community because many of the players were sympathetic to both organizations but on opposing sides of this issue. Here are Brendu Buchanan, Bob Schultz, Stacy Dickerson, and John Stroud telling the saga of the great beer garden split. I hated Thomas Lawley and yeah it was horrible. We were all big enemies because we didn't want to uh, turn the beer garden over to uh, the Arts Council because uh, and they wanted to do it because of it, it was there's so much money to be made and they wanted to make it and they they realized they could obviously uh, they could run it and they have. And they just did it a different way. But, you know, we fought tooth and nail against losing that. That was our major uh, uh, fundraiser. So that that was caused a lot of bad blood. That would definitely be a low point for me. I was a DJ at KDNK and the president of the Mountain Fair Board. We used to have a – the Mountain Fair was an independent for-profit uh, entity. 
because of some weird tax ruling. And uh, at that time, we had our own checking account, our own board, and uh, but we had the same director, uh, Thomas, ran both the Arts Council and the Mountain Fair. And the uh, station manager at the time came to one of our Mountain Fair board meetings and announced that uh, she didn't feel like they needed to pay a commission at the time they paid 15% of uh, sales. I think it was 15%. This has been a while. And that uh, they had the liquor permit and they were going to sell liquor and that was the way it was. And we all sort of sit there looking at each other going, this can't be happening. And uh, so uh, John Stroud was the president of Kading K Board at that time, and I called John up and said, "John, this is a train wreck. You need to intervene because these two groups need to be helping each other, not in conflict." And he said, "Well, uh, the board is really focused on not micromanaging, and uh, you know Mary has a position on this and." And we're going to back her. And that sort of set some things in motion that were really hard. And really, uh, it was uncomfortable being somebody who loves KDMK and somebody who loves the Arts Council. And some people felt like they had to pick sides. And uh, I wasn't willing to pick sides. I think both of them are incredibly important and both uh, need to be in support of each other but the at the end of the day it probably uh, ended up being something that was a godsend for the Arts Council because you know we would put on the whole fair risk all the money and make less than $20,000 from the fair and uh, Katie and Kay ran the beer booth and would make just about the same amount of money without any of the rests or ongoing. And we we really had no idea um, what it would take. And so we took it over, and Drew Saxon was on the Arts Council board at that time, and he had the wonderful idea of, look, we aren't doing this for money, so why don't we get groups to man it and pay them um, I don't remember what it was, uh, something in the tips to uh, to man the booth. And um, that way, you know, we aren't trying to milk every dollar out of this thing, and we're spreading it around. And I don't know what the arrangement is today, but at the time, at least, I felt like that was a, a really great idea. And it got more people involved in the fair. and. Uh, the liquor sales <clears throat> went up dramatically. I had, uh, at the time in my youth, I had been a banquet bartender for the Hyatt Regency and done really big events for them at different hotels around. And so we just set it up very different, uh, more like we would do if we were doing a banquet bar for a big event rather than the, the approach that Katie and Kay had taken. And it eliminated the lines. The Katie and Kay approach was based really on trying to 
have good security and uh, make sure people weren't taking things. And we had an approach that was just let's get the, get rid of the lines and allow people to, you know, get a drink and get back to the dance floor. And that uh, that resulted in dramatically increased sales. Uh, we ended up having to do more and more of it ourselves uh, to prep because of all the sales and to have staff on hand. Uh, but it still was shifts of local volunteers from organizations that would financially benefit from the liquor sales. I wasn't on the board when the split happened. I, I did not agree with with that decision that Carbondale Arts made at the time. I thought it was um, an unfortunate decision because it was a, such a big major fundraiser for Katie and Kay. Um, and uh, I, uh, I sort of felt like Carbondale Arts had stolen um, a brainchild of... I can't even remember. It might have been Brenda who came up with the beer garden. I don't know who it was, but uh, it was our it was our brainchild as a fundraiser for that community organization and the powers that be were at the time um, part of Carbondale Arts CCAH at the time. Um, I think they decided that they needed to generate some more income and that that was a place that they could target and they knew that that uh, it would be a benefit to Carbondale Arts to take that over and just have that be their thing. So it was kind of a rift for a lot of people for a long time um, that didn't agree with that. When Thomas Lolly moved on, he was responsible for that, I thought, and his board were responsible for it. And it actually took me a while to be forgiving of of Carbondale Arts or CCAH. I I thought it was a major. Um, I thought it was a really rotten thing to do, and I I felt that way for several several years. I don't know how other people, but it didn't stop me from going to the fair. Um, but it but it I thought it was a, a sore spot for me for a, a very long time. And there was no way that it was ever going to change, and I actually fought for it for a little bit here and there to see if we could change it, but get it go back. But it, I, I knew it was, it was, it was never going to go back to being a, a fundraiser for Katie and Kay. Um, I think I had fought for at least having having Katie and Kay always having um, at least one full day of. Um, in the in the beer garden and or or the cantina, which it was changed, the name was changed to at least getting, but at, but that didn't really go over either. I consider Stacy a good friend, and um, she was really on Katie and Kay's side of it, and it was really hard for me because she had a very different description of the events than the one I experienced, and. I had no interest in arguing with her or trying to convince her otherwise, so I would just sort of take it in and silently suffer a little bit and wait for, you know, things to to change. And I'm sure even today there are people who have 
different versions of of what happened and there's really nothing I can do about that. I can only tell what my experiences were and um for me when that first year when uh all those groups showed up and uh and did shifts and you know for a small nonprofit <clears throat> you can spend a lot of time doing a lot of work and make fourteen or fifteen hundred dollars on a fundraiser and this would allow you know a group to come over they work hard but they can have a drink while they're doing it and it can be a lot of fun and you get to see a lot of people when you're schlepping the the drinks up there and at the end of the shift their group has at least at that time it was like fourteen or fifteen hundred bucks and they didn't have to do all the things that you would do uh, for months to have an event. And so for me, that that was uh, that felt pretty pretty good. And I I was I was less traumatized. Uh, my feelings mostly came from friends of mine who uh, really felt like the beer booth had been stolen from KDNK, and uh, I really didn't have a an interest in arguing with them about it, so I just sort of internalized it and waited for it to blow over. You know, it was it was hard at the time, but looking back, it was the right thing to do. Honestly, it was the only thing to do. I don't, but I don't know how long it took that to go away. But I've forgotten about it. I mean, I haven't forgotten everything about it, but it, it does just seem like a natural progression in the retrospect. I, I think in the end, it's it's turned out just fine. It it is a, a major undertaking, and it it would have been a, a challenge year after year, probably for Katie and Kay to continue to manage manage that and allow it to grow to where it is now. In retrospect, the alcohol challenges the Mountain Fair faced might have been predictable. You could see things developing the way they did, and it made sense that it eventually all worked out. COVID-19 was equally challenging, but in a very different way. It was entirely unpredictable and unprecedented. After all, how do you throw a big party when a pandemic rages and six feet doesn't describe the hunkin' cutoffs dancing next to you? Well, it turns out that the only way to face a challenge like that is to work together. That is what Amy Kimberly and her team at Carbondale Arts did as they produced the COVID Fair in 2020. We got a lot of really positive feedback. It felt so good. Uh, for me, I mean, COVID was so hard, and we had to pivot in a lot of ways. But as you know, there was that kind of sweet spot in summer where you felt a little hopeful as it got warmer. You could be outside, and I knew that we had our fiftieth coming up, so we couldn't have a fiftieth unless we had a forty ninth. I felt strongly that we had to find a way to honor that weekend, that fair. And um, so the first thought was, let's just get a big flatbed trailer, put it on a truck. We create a roving stage and we bring these bands through the neighborhood. So that that was really the start of it. It seemed like that would be COVID safe and would bring joy to many people. But then I thought, well, you know, seems like maybe we could have like 20 vendors just in the, in the little park. Uh, on Main Street, which won't always be there, but we were lucky to have last year, and it had a fence all around it. 
So it looked like it'd be easy to control how many people came in. And we had a separate exit. So I thought, well, let's try this. So then we added the 20 vendors. And that went smashing. I mean, people really supported and came out. And then I thought, well, maybe we need a marching band to march into the neighborhoods as well, either to herald the arrival of the flatbed truck or maybe so we could hit more neighborhoods at once. And that was really it. And then we tried, then we did a a streaming show at Steve's on Saturday night with, I thought, why not do that too and add a a little uh, more um, oomph to it, like uh, from, you know, band, a national act that that we could stream from Steve's. And that was the reminders um, supported by Lizzie and uh, and Natalie. So we just kind of hit it from all angles it went really safe it was we also needed to have an opening blessing and a drum circle which Lori agreed to do from the the, the trailer um and it, yeah the whole thing felt so good we had that elephant the the an art car that was supposed to go to burning man but there was no burning man and i knew the art car was in town and i asked the cops well what's your feeling there and uh basically they said, well, uh, it's not street legal, but what we don't see, we won't worry about. So uh, if, if you ask us, we'll have to say no. But if you don't ask us, then that's up to you. So it's like, okay, I'm not asking you. And it was great. I mean, that elephant thing was beautiful. And it would follow the trailer. Uh, we went into Satank. Satank was quite the experience last year because by it takes a long time to get a trailer anywhere, especially if the band's playing on the back of it. And Bill Flanagan did the music, and really Bill has been a part of the fair off and on through the years as well. And uh, so I got to Satank uh, before the trailer because I had been with the marching band over in a different section of town marching through the neighborhoods. And... <laughs> When I got to Satank, I was like, oh, boy. Uh, Satank was ready for a party, and people were dressed up, and they were waiting for this thing. And I remember I kept calling, where are you? Where are you? They're so, they're like, everybody's ready. And finally, here comes the, by now it was getting dark, so the beautiful love sign was all lit up on the uh, on the trailer, and there were lights. And Olivia, I think she was in Gold Lamb May, and, the trailer comes rolling in, and uh, right behind it is this incredible elephant vehicle with beautiful lights on it. It was a very great moment of the fair last year that I'm glad more people didn't experience because there was quite a few. I was just like praying, please, everybody stay safe. The craziest thing was we had a safety health and safety team that followed everywhere. And so they would try to keep people 25 feet from the the stage and also, you know, six feet social distance. Please have your masks on. And, of course, in Satank, the oldest people did not have their masks on. And were like, oh, my God, Marge Palmer, go get your mask on, you know, (laughs) come on. Um, But. We just have to also had to go for the beauty of the moment because it was incredible. And I remember uh, Gabriella, like, all of a sudden shows up with her 
drum. And it was the feeling that we didn't always have. And then the next day, Sunday, here we go again, final final band. I'm thinking, oh, I don't know why I try to do this Sunday. It's just not going to feel right. And we had this mariachi band. Uh, I think they're called Mariachi Jalisco. And they're out of Glenwood. And uh, so so I, I put them on the, the trailer and the, the guy goes, I mean, there's only three of them. And then he, like, they show up. There's only two of them. He's like, oh, this other guy hurt himself. So he won't be here. But we, we got this. We got this. So I'm thinking, oh, this could be a little bit of a letdown. Well, people started gathering. We were putting the bands on, changing them out at the CMC parking lot. And, and all of a sudden, people just started showing up. And I remember Cammie and Jeff Britt. Jeff Britt, they were being very, very careful. So Cammie couldn't be part of the fair. And Cammie Britt has been a huge part of the fair since she was a baby. Um, but they did a drive-by. All of a sudden, they were there in their car waving. But they, they, you know, of course, then drove on. But all these other people started showing up on bicycles and stuff. And I'm like, oh. Well, the mariachi band takes off. And our plan, and this is something we want to do this year, too, is to, to go into the trailer parks and Garfield apartments where a lot of our Latinx communities live and really bring the music to them. Because I, I don't know how many of them actually come to the fair or not. But, um, and so, so we first went to Second Street because my mother lived there and I promised her it would come. And, and at Second Street, uh, this third guy jumps up on the, on the um, trailer. Turns out he had been a roommate of one of the band members and um, they hadn't seen each other in years. And this guy had a, a voice like Mario Alonza. I mean, he just knew every song, started singing. Everybody's out and dancing on Second Street. Then we moved over to the trailer park um, up at the right near Snowmass Drive. So we're over there playing, and this guy's just singing beautifully, and more and more people are gathering, and people were coming out of their porches. But people were being very safe. I That, that I remember. And and then we decided to go finish up at Garfield Apartments. And it had been kind of threatening to storm and the sun was about to go down. And you know what happens at every mountain fair almost. We get to there. The sky is like this glorious pink. And a rainbow happens. This amazing rainbow. And all these people come out from the Garfield Apartments. And then the bikes, by now there is about probably 50 people on bikes following along. And uh, then this old friend of mine who lives in one of the trailers right near Garfield Apartments, she makes incredible Salvadorian tamales. She comes out and starts selling these delicious tamales, and the mariachi band is playing. It was as good as any Sunday night at any mountain fair ever. I was like, there it is, the mountain fair magic. In Episode 5, we'll dive deep into the reign of Queen Amy. That's next on the Carbondale Mountain Fair Podcast Project. This podcast was created with the same love and care that the Carbondale Mountain Fair has been created with for 50 years. Special thanks go to Luke Nessler, Amy Kimberly, Terry Glassnap, Steve Cole, Carbondale Arts, Katie and Kay, 
and the Carbondale Historical Society. 